So, um, so this is how I looked when I first heard these words. And now, if you wish, you can take your dog for a walk. <laughs> but let me back up. The context of this was May of 2014. And I was at the Kripalu Retreat Center. Some of you are familiar with it in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. And it was at an recovery, meditation, and yoga conference. I found about half the teachers there not all that skillful, that they were there mostly to sell books and build their personal brand. And I found about half the other teachers utterly transformative. One of the most enriching experiences when I was there for this four-day conference was a session on trauma-informed yoga. And we didn't get right into the yoga. It was led by a personal story, like many of the other people there, we were all kind of people in recovery, by a teacher who shared her story of being a survivor, a survivor of multiple acts of violence. She was a survivor. She told her story in such a way that it called forth the truth that existed in the room from so many of the other people there. About 30 or 40 of us, as best I can remember it, just about every person in that room who identified as a woman shared a story of being a survivor of sexual violence. Many of the people who identified as men did as well. It was powerful. This, you see, was a few years before Me Too. And although as a clergy person I have received and heard many of those stories over the years, I've never been in a room in which so many people were sharing their stories and making space for each other. There were a lot of tears. There was compassion and communion, and a certain kind of emotional intensity, as you might be able to imagine if you've never been in a context like this. So at the end of what felt like the recovery meeting portion of this, the teacher guided us into uh, a grounding meditation, a way to kind of come back into the energy of our bodies and treat whatever was arising with compassion welcoming whatever was there. And then she said, I'm wondering if you would do something with me. Could could we get a little playful together? And because of the truth of her authenticity of her story, I think the room was willing to follow her to some uncertain seeming places. And so now let me resume where I was before. In downward dog. She said, sometimes dogs feel happy, and they like to wiggle their tail. And so if you feel so moved to wiggle your tail, do so. Doesn't matter how anyone other's dog is moving their tail, you move your tail in the way you want to, or don't move your tail, it's your choice. Sometimes dogs like to walk. So if you wish, you can take your dog for a walk. And this is how 30 or 40 of us were walking around the room on our hands and our feet. And she said sometimes, now this is only with consent, remember, and we know she meant it. 
Sometimes dogs like to greet each other by smelling each other's dog's butts. And if you want to do that right now, you certainly can. Keep a little distance there, of course. And she said, sometimes dogs, when they've been working really hard, like to curl up in a sunspot and take a little nap. They did it longer and I'll do it, but you get the point. And this is how that room that had experienced such emotional intensity with each other, between us, amongst us, also started to break out into laughs. She, you know, said perhaps, you know, if you see a juicy fire hydrant there, you can take advantage of that as well, too. (laughs) A space that was sacred because of its sharing and its depth also became sacred in a different dimension because of its playfulness and its lightness and its ease. Kind of like that song we just sang, Leave What's Heavy Behind, remembering the air in our lungs, remembering our bodies. That sacred space became playful and joyous, even alongside all that was heavy for so many of the people there. The radical teacher of last century, person whose name you might know, Emma Goldman, she said, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. (laughs) And most often, people kind of haul that out and teach that as a corrective to the stereotype, an unfair stereotype, I think, of people who get accused of being social justice warriors, as if they are joyless, as if we are joyless. And I think it's a good corrective, but I think there's something actually deeper, whether Emma Goldman intended it or not. If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, she said, because I think she had an insight that is absolutely true. There is no revolution. There is no transformation without joy, without dance, without being in our bodies, without that lightness of spirit that all people need. This current series is about how easy it can be to be overwhelmed by the pain of our world and by the pain of our own lives and remembering, therefore, how essential it is that joy and comfort shouldn't just be afterthoughts. They actually can be spiritual practices to remember the lightness of our own being, to give us fuel to move forward with our lives. I thought of this as past week, the midterms, and actually something that happened before the midterms. Some of you might remember this story that came out of Georgia about a group of uh, African-American elders who were on their way to vote on this bus. The South is rising. Power. And if you know this story, you know it ends in a very disturbing way. That someone, quote unquote, saw a group of African-American elders getting on a bus to go somewhere and called the authorities and they were called back to the senior center and somehow they were not allowed to vote that day. Now, again, remember, this is Georgia. This is Atlanta. This is the Deep South. These are African-American elders, almost all of whom were born when Jim Crow was still the law of the land. They have seen this kind of nonsense in ways I can't even imagine for most of their entire lives. And so they got off that bus and there was an interview with many of them and the organizers of the event. And they were not downspirited. They were not downtrodden. They said, we're going to go and vote. (laughs) 
Nothing will stop us from exercising our right to this franchise. And then they started to dance. (laughs) Can't dance. I don't want to be part of your revolution. And I love that, unlike, you know, most of the people who I went to that yoga, meditation, recovery conference, they're my age, a lot of them younger. These are older folks. And they're finding the best way they know to move their bodies. To remember the joy and the comfort that is in movement in the midst of, not in spite of, but in the midst of difficult times. I thought, you know, they must come from a tradition very different from the tradition that I grew up in, in which the joke was, I grew up Jewish, for those of you who don't know, it wasn't terribly spiritually rich, sadly, I think it's one of the reasons I left. Interesting enough, after I became a Unitarian Universalist, I started going to some Jewish congregations in which people would dance during Sabbath services. My God, who does such a thing? And I think this is amazing, bringing the, the, the body and the spirit together. And so the joke was growing up that we were God's frozen people. (laughs) Don't laugh so much. Unitarian Universalists have been accused of the same thing. (laughs) But not here. Not at Wellsprings. This is what I love about this community. Our little kids lead us. They dance, sometimes in circles, holding hands together. Many of you, I saw you swaying back and forth. That was pretty good. You had some rhythm. One of the things that came up in the process over the last six, eight months of refreshing our DNA, our values, belief, vision, and mission, one of the things that bubbled up, and you'll probably see some language around this in the refreshed, not edited, not rejected, but refreshed version of our DNA, the spiritual identity of this community, was all about embodied spirituality. Many of us grew up in traditions in which the body and the soul were taught as somehow separate things or hostile things or the body was something that we were supposed to reject or treat as an afterthought. And I got to say the deepest aspect of my own personal healing as someone who is growing their spiritual life has been exactly this, where soul meets body and arises together. This is shaping my life in some very powerful ways here at Wellsprings as an expression of Wellsprings and also beyond this community as well, too. Some of you know, I think most of you do by this point, I'm in the final year of a clinical social work degree at Westchester. And right now, at this point in our schooling, we're kind of digging into a number of uh, models of practice, one of which is the standard of many forms of mental health treatment. It's called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. People use it so often in clinical practice because, for lack of a better word, it works. CBT is basically this. Our thoughts about the world influence our behaviors in the world. It is less about what is happening and more about how we interpret what is happening. And so often what happens for many of us, and I am certainly one of those people who has this experience, is that we have these automatic thoughts, very often negative thoughts, negative self-talk sometimes it is called, that speak of deeper, more negative core beliefs about ourselves, and these automatic thoughts get in the way of our connection with the world, and we think it's the quote-unquote truth, (laughs) 
rather than opening up a capacity to see the world differently and this kind of automatic thinking, what it does is it reinforces a lot of the symptoms of mood disorders. And so the theory behind CBT is that if we get at these thoughts and do a little what's called cognitive restructuring, then maybe the symptoms might change. There's a good theory and practice behind it. Here's one example of cognitive restructuring. Uh, Sylvia Borstein, wonderful teacher, kind of the Jewish grandmother of the American Buddhist mindfulness movement for years ago when she was starting out on the path. She wanted to take retreat at the American, at the San Francisco Zen Center. And she called once, twice, three, four, five, six times. And she could never reach the person who maintained the central core list of who was on retreat at the center. And she was on the phone with the receptionist around the sixth or seventh time or whatever it was and just feeling really dispirited. And she had one of those automatic thoughts. And she said, perhaps this means I'm not intended or supposed to go on this retreat. And although the person on the other end of the line was, as far as she knew, not a CBT therapist, simply responded, maybe it just means that the person you're trying to reach isn't here right now. (laughs) That is skillful cognitive restructuring. These automatic thoughts are not the truth. Life could be a whole bunch of different ways, but when we get locked into these ways of seeing, it really can affect us in in negative ways. And and I get it. I I get it. I mean, even if you're not my Facebook friend, this is how I introduce myself to the world. I am an Eeyore aspiring to be a poo. (laughs) I have a lot of those automatic thoughts. Now I'm very familiar with them. I've done a lot of internal work, a lot of internal work over the years. And I don't have to live according to them simply because I think them. So, yeah, I, I would like to be, you know, a less overthinking kind of person, even if it's a bear of little brain. But recently, in the last few years of my spiritual practice and my kind of self-work, I've started to realize there's another Pooh character who actually is more meaningful to me than Winnie the Pooh, and it's this guy. Tigger. Y'all know it? The most wonderful thing about Tigger is Tigger's a wonderful thing. His head is made of rubber. His tail is made of spring. He is always on the move. Tigger moves. And that's actually one of the things as a clinician, as a person who's studying this stuff and working on this stuff, points out the limits of cognitive behavioral therapy, especially when it comes to trauma, especially when it comes to some of our deepest despair that we as human beings hold and what may bring us healing and comfort and perhaps even joy. Some of you know this book. Some of you have recommended this book to me before I ever read this book. Bessel van der Kolk. The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. He is a psychiatrist, incredibly skilled, has been doing this research and this clinical work for decades. And what he finds is that actually when it comes to trauma, when it comes to the kinds of experiences that people in the room at the recovery yoga and meditation conference we're talking about it was informed by exactly some of this work. That sometimes our deepest pain cannot be accessed through our thoughts. As other teachers have said, our issues live in our tissues. <laughs> and so we got to access it through getting in touch in skillful and safe ways of the body. Now, Bessel van der Kolk, for some of us, might be the most well-known person does this work, but he's not the only person. There's a teacher and a therapist named Pat Ogden. 
who is the head of what's called the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute. I'm going to read you a quote because I have seen this in practice. I'm just getting a taste of this, and it is absolutely true. She says, what's so exciting to me is that to be helpful, somatic therapists, soma, somatic, the body. Somatic therapists don't explicitly need to know clients' beliefs, discuss their memories, or even have them report what happened. Since we're always looking at how the body has shaped itself around past experiences, we can help clients with memories that are pre-verbal or entirely forgotten. It reminds me of what Albert Einstein said, the fish will be the last to discover water. The fish will be the last to discover water. And some of these things, just interjecting here for a second, they're unconscious to us. And so she says, she continues, that's just how many of us are. We don't have any conscious memories, perhaps, that shaped our everyday movement patterns and body posture, but our past continues to live in our organization of our bodies. She helps people, and the truth is we can do this right here, right now, a little bit if we want, help to understand what she calls our movement vocabulary. Every moment we're alive, right now, you all, I am, are expressing our movement vocabulary, and especially if we have had mental and behavioral health challenges in our lives, developing some insight and some knowledge about our movement vocabulary. Uh, Perhaps when we are frightened, we go immediately to a defensive posture, or when we are ashamed, our eyes become downcast, or we might turn our bodies away from people, or perhaps we grew up in families in which it was impossible to feel sadness, and we turn towards the world, not just with words, but with actions and behaviors of rage and aggression. So often these things just feel automatic, not the thoughts, the behaviors. And if we can get in touch and expand our movement vocabulary, it's not just a matter of changing what was. It's actually recognizing, and maybe some of you have heard this over the years, move a muscle, change a feeling. Expand our movement vocabulary. As you can tell, I'm pretty enthusiastic about this stuff because it works and it is transformative. And it gets at the heart of one of what my favorite teachers and someone I know who has been influential for many of you here at Wellsprings as well, too, says Richard Rohr, the Franciscan teacher who comes from a tradition that so often has taught so many people. I know that the body and the soul are hostile to each other. He says, no, 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 they belong together. And he says, we don't think ourselves into a new way of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. It's here in the body. We do this at Mindful Recovery when we meet twice a month. And I'm not a yoga teacher yet. I'm going to get that certification at some point. But I learned how to do some basic yoga in terms of my mindfulness teacher training. And so often we'll do this kind of thing. We'll just stand maybe after a mountain pose and the hands will go back and forth. And I'll say, if it's comfortable, if it's safe for you, close your eyes and maybe just feel, maybe just feel the, the air on the hands. You know, don't think about this. Just become aware. Maybe just notice moment to moment what it's like to move. How is it right now? Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, allowing our experience, our embodied experience to be just what it is. I'm saying this much faster, by the way, folks up here, because I'm crunched for time. But I'm doing this slower during mindful recovery. 
And sometimes I'll say something because, you know, sacred does not equal somber. It's okay to be playful, right? It is necessary to be playful. And I'll say, you know what? So many of us arrived at this practice tonight, expert in one particular thing, which is kicking our own asses, being harsh towards ourselves. And I'll say, maybe you can just use this as you notice your hands going back and forth to allow this to be an opportunity to give yourself a pat on the back. There is no transformation, revolution of self, society, without our capacity to be in touch with and perhaps even love our bodies. We don't think ourselves into new ways of living. The living is really where it starts. Makes us more creative, more open for connection, more open for community. And so I want to end with uh, a story. It has nothing to do with yoga whatsoever, but it has everything to do with showing up with our bodies. Some of you might have heard, it's been on social media a little bit recently, that there's this place called October Books in England. And they got some uh, difficult news. They were being kicked out of the space that they had been in for decades. <laughs> Huge rent increase. And they needed to move. And they needed to move 2,000 books. And they didn't have the money to hire all the people, the trucks, the movers, to move those 2,000 books, everything out of their storeroom. And so they put out a call. Would you all come help us move? And this is what happened. Up that way and down that way, look in both directions as far as the eye can see, and 2,000 books were moved hand to hand to hand in the matter of a couple hours. And pretty soon, October Books had a new home. This is what happens when we show up with our full selves, when we show up with our bodies. It's not about any ideal pose. <laughs> It's not about being the strongest and certainly not about being the weakest either. It's about recognizing that the challenges in our lives are arising all the time. And the challenges of our world can feel so commonplace. But when we can remember and hold that intention to show up with our full selves, our very bodies, these bodies, yours, mine, ours, we will find that the opportunities for connection, for community, are always arising. So today, may you move in all the ways the Spirit wants you to move. And may we move together. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Spirit, you who are verb, you who are breath, you who reminds us that even in our rest, there is still movement. There is still breath. There is the turning of the earth. There are the shades of day and night alternating with each other. There is what motivated us to arrive here today, to move here to this place and to be in beloved community with one another. May we remember that which is actually the most basic thing, that water that forgets, <laughs> that we are not separate we are a part of. It is here. 
This is water. These are our bodies. Arising from this most basic awareness, may we practice the arts of our connection with each other and with ourselves. Amen.